It's a movie I will never forget, and the reason it made such an impression on me is because it took me by surprise, total surprise. I mean, by the time I got to the end of the movie, I couldn't believe that I didn't see it, that I didn't see what was really happening there. And I think that was everybody else's reaction the first time they saw the movie. This was back in 1999, and the movie was called The Sixth Sense. Bruce Willis plays a psychologist, and he's working with a little boy, a little boy who sees dead people. Only when this little boy sees those dead people and he spends time talking with them, the dead people don't know that they're dead. And this little boy has these kind of interactions all the time. And the whole experience is alarming and upsetting to him. So Bruce Willis, with his vast experience and all his expertise as a child psychologist, he spends time working with this little boy and he helps him. But then you get to the end of the movie and you discover that Bruce Willis doesn't know that he himself is one of those dead people. And when that secret is revealed, it's like your head explodes. I mean, the plot was so brilliant that anybody who saw the movie once knew, I'm going to have to go back and watch this again. And the second time through, now, every moment in that movie, every scene, every line of dialogue takes on a whole new significance. Now that you know the secret, the second time you're watching the movie, you see the whole story in a totally different way. Well, that doesn't just happen in the movies. It happens in life, too. Uh, when I was a little boy growing up, I always knew that my parents loved me. But it wasn't until I became a parent myself that now I could look back on all those experiences I had as a child and see everything in a different way. Now, from my parents' perspective, it was only then that I really began to appreciate the depth and the wisdom of their love for me. For example, when I was a kid, I'd ask for, I'd be hungry, and, and I'd ask for a candy bar. And how would my parents respond? They would hand me a piece of fruit instead. And at the time, I thought my parents were either callous or they were clueless. Hey, mom, dad, I don't think you heard me. It's not just that I'm hungry. I'm asking for my hunger to be satisfied in a very specific way. I need a candy bar. And yet, instead of receiving a piece of chocolate, I was handed an apple instead. And at the time, that was just so disappointing. But now, years later, being a parent myself, I can see what my parents were doing. There was no problem with their hearing, and there was no problem with their heart. I mean, they really cared about me. In fact, it was because they cared about me that they chose to respond to my request in a much different way. Isn't it true that many times when you're in the moment, you don't understand or appreciate what's being done for you? And it's only later on, when you get further down the road, that then you can look back and really begin to understand what was happening back there. Think about the disciples in John chapter 13. Jesus and his friends have gathered in the upper room to celebrate the Passover. Only on this night, the Passover celebration is going to take on a whole new significance. Now, that's not apparent to the disciples on that night. It's only much later on that they can look back and then begin to appreciate the significance of what actually happened in that upper room. You remember that night how Jesus took everybody by surprise? He grabs a towel, he grabs a bowl of water, he gets down on his knees, and he begins to wash their dirty feet. And you talk about your head exploding. I mean, all 12 disciples are in a state of shock. What's going on? What is Jesus up to? I mean, they can see what is happening. He's washing their feet. But in that moment, do any of those disciples appreciate the significance of what Jesus is doing for them? No. In fact, that night, John chapter 13 and verse 7, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but later on you will. Talk about a powerful truth. Do you hear what he's saying? So many times when we're in the moment, the truth of what is happening, 
It's not clear to us. And it's only later on, we get further down the road, that then the light comes on and everything begins to clear up. And then we begin to grasp the magnitude of what occurred back there. Think about the cross. When it first happened, when Jesus first died on the cross, the disciples were all filled with despair. I mean, in the moment, that seemed like the darkest day in human history. But then, 50 days later, after 40, spending 40 days with Jesus and all his resurrection appearances, and then Acts chapter 1, after spending another 10 days in a time of prayer, now, 50 days later, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, and everything has changed. Now, the disciples look back at the cross and they see something completely different. Now they realize that Jesus wasn't a victim. He was the victor. God had not been defeated. God had won. Now they look back and they see in that cross a grace and a beauty and a forgiveness that they had never noticed before. What was once a symbol of evil, now that cross has become a symbol of hope. Well, I think this lesson that Jesus taught in John chapter 13, hey, you may not understand what God is doing right now, but trust me, later on you will. I think that same lesson is being taught here in Acts chapter 12. The very beginning of Acts chapter 12, we see a king by the name of Herod, and he's on the rampage. This evil tyrant is doing everything he can to oppose the work of God. He's persecuting the church, he's arresting its leaders, and now he's beginning to kill them. So when the chapter first opens up, everything looks bad. James, one of the 12 apostles, has already been executed. And now Peter, another one of the apostles, has been arrested and put in prison, and soon he's going to be executed too. And it looks like King Herod is running the show, that he's in control, that he is succeeding in every wicked thing he does. But then you get to the very end of Acts chapter 12, and everything has changed. Herod is dead, Peter is free, and the Bible says, and the word of God continued to multiply. Now the evil empire is lost again. By the end of the chapter, it becomes clear how God is causing all things to work together for good. But that sure wasn't clear at the beginning of the chapter. You go back to verse 1 when all these bad things are starting to happen. And in that moment, it was hard for anybody to see how is the church ever going to survive. Or here's another example. Right in the middle of Acts chapter 12, you see the same lesson being taught again. Peter's in prison. It's the night before he's scheduled to be killed. But an angel shows up. And a bright light shines in that prison cell. Now, at first, Peter doesn't realize it because he's sound asleep. Verse 7 says the angel had to kick him in the side in order to wake him up. And that expression for kicking him it means that he had to kick him pretty hard because Peter's in such a deep sleep. But even then, when Peter wakes up, he's still kind of drowsy because you'll notice verse 8, this angel literally has to instruct Peter step by step about everything he needs to do. Okay, Peter, stand up. Now, put on your shirt. Now, put on your sandals. Now, put on your coat. Now, Peter, follow me. And so they walk past the first set of guards, and then they walk past the second set of guards, and then that iron gate miraculously opens up. And then they find themselves out in the streets of Jerusalem, and when they get to the end of the street, and the angel has finally brought Peter to a place of safety, it's only then that the angel disappears. And then Peter really wakes up. Verse 11, you hear him say, Now I know, without a doubt, that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me. Do you get that? At the time that it happened, he didn't see it. I mean, at the time when the angel first shows up in that prison cell and, and the, the chains just miraculously fall off the wrist of Peter and the doors to the prison cell miraculously open up, the whole time Peter thought he was dreaming. At the moment when all these marvelous things were happening, it didn't seem real to him and it didn't become real for Peter until much later on. Now here's the point I'm trying to make. You've got to have meaning in order to live. 
if you don't know your purpose, if you don't understand why you're here, the reason why you exist, you're not going to make it. You're not going to survive. Meaning is not optional to life. It's like spiritual oxygen. Without a sense of meaning, without a sense of, of purpose, you can't breathe. You can't live. But that meaning can only be discovered when you put yourself in the right context. That meaning can only be discovered when you begin to see the bigger picture. Think about language and the way we use words. The only way to really understand the meaning of a particular word is to see it in its context. For example, think about the word trouble. That word trouble, is it a noun or is it a verb? Well, that depends. You've got to see it in its context before you decide. When I was a six-year-old boy, I stole a candy cane from the red and white grocery store. There in that tiny town of Bridgeport, Illinois, I walked right into that store, grabbed that piece of candy, stuck it in my pocket, and I walked right back out. I mean, it seemed so easy, so simple. At the time, I thought myself to be a pretty clever little guy. I got away with my crime. Well, unbeknownst to me, the owner of the store had been watching me the whole time, and he immediately called my dad. So by the time I got back home, my father was waiting for me, standing on the front porch with a board in his hand. And in that moment, I knew I was in trouble. Now, in that context, the word trouble is a noun. And it's a noun I will never forget. But suppose on another occasion, I come up to you and I say, hey, I hate to trouble you, but could you move for a minute so I can sweep underneath your chair? Now, I'm using the word trouble as a verb. See, same word, but it can be used in so many different ways. So the only way to determine the meaning is to see it in its larger context. Sometimes you've got to read the whole sentence. Sometimes you've got to read the whole paragraph. Sometimes you even have to read the whole book before you truly understand what that particular word actually means. Well, so it is with the events in your life and mine. So many times when we're in the moment, it's hard to see what God is up to. And it's only when we have a little more context or a little more time or a little more perspective that then the light comes on and everything begins to clear up. So it is, I think, so it is with this mystery that we encounter here in the very first part of Acts chapter 12. Look at this with me. Acts chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod, now this is the grandson of Herod the Great, the guy that we read about back in Matthew chapter 2, the one who killed all the little boys in Bethlehem. This is his grandson. And the grandson's just like the grandfather, evil, wicked. So it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. In what way is he going to persecute them? Well, we're given an example. Verse 2, he had James, the brother of John, one of the twelve apostles, he had James put to death with a sword. Now pause for a moment. You put yourself in the shoes of these early disciples. Always before in the book of Acts, when a Christian was arrested and thrown in jail, they never stayed there because God would intervene and provide a way out. Like Acts chapter 5, James and all the apostles were arrested and put in prison, but God sent an angel and rescued them. But this time, there's no angel, no rescue, no miracle, no divine intervention. It's like God has disappeared. He's nowhere to be found. So if I'm one of these early, Christian, early Christians, I got questions. God, you gave us a great commission. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And we're just getting started on that project. We still have so much work to do. So God, in a critical moment like this, how can you allow somebody like James to be killed? I mean, he's one of the 12 apostles. We've only got 12. He's one of them. 
how, how can we, you, you allow him to be taken at this time? I mean, you think about James and what he brought to the table, what he saw, what he experienced in those three and a half years that he walked with Jesus. I mean, he, he offers something unique, the insights, the wisdom that he could bring to this work. God, wouldn't it be wise to allow the 12 apostles to stay alive as long as possible? And not only that, God, James was so young. I mean, he's right in the middle of his life. He had so much energy, so much talent, so much to give, so much to contribute. How could you allow him to be cut down when he's right in the prime of his life? God, this makes no sense at all to me. And yet, at the very moment that I'm wrestling with those questions, this situation gets even more complicated. Look at verses 3 and 4. When Herod, King Herod, saw that killing James met with the approval of all the Jewish people, saw that it made really popular, he decides to do it again. So this time he proceeded to seize Peter, another one of the apostles. Now this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. So after arresting him, Herod had Peter put in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Keep in mind, book of Acts, this is the third time Peter's been put in prison. And always before, God had provided a way out. The en enemy is aware of this. So this time they take extra measures to keep him locked up. Because, the last part of verse 4, Herod is intending to bring Peter out. He's going to do the same thing to Peter he did to James, only this difference. Whereas he executed James privately, this time he's bringing Peter out for a public trial, to be publicly executed. He's going to make a big show out of this. And he intends to do this after the Passover. So... Killing James seemed to work out so well, now Herod's going to do it again, only this time he's going to do it with Peter. Only this time there's a different outcome. This time God does send an angel, and Peter is rescued. He's set free, and Peter goes on to live for many more years. Well, when I come to the end of verse 4, I'm puzzled. I don't get this. James dies, Peter lives. What's going on? I mean, God could have spared James in the same exact way he did for Peter, so why didn't he? And the Bible doesn't say it doesn't even attempt to explain. In the moment when I'm reading these verses, I'm being left in the dark. Is James being neglected? Is God playing favorites? Does God care more about Peter than he does about James? I've got all these questions and I'm not getting any answers. And it's at that moment that the words of Jesus come to mind from John chapter 13. Hey, David, you may not understand what God is doing right now, but trust me, later on you will. So I start to think about that. What am I going to see later on? Well, where is James right now? He's with the Lord. And now that he's with the Lord, what is life like for him? And the light comes on. Maybe, maybe Jesus allowed James to die because he had a better life to give him. See, James is not being neglected. In fact, James is the first of the 12 apostles to experience what Jesus had prayed for back in John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 24, Jesus prayed, Father, I desire that these men, these 12 men that you've given to me, I desire that one day they be with me where I am so they can see my glory. Yes, the rescue of Peter was a remarkable event, but Peter's going to live to die another day. It's James who experiences the real deliverance here, delivered from death itself, raised up so he'll never die again, raised up so he can experience a life that is far better than anything he's ever known before. When I uh, perform a funeral, I'll talk about this. In that moment of grief when everybody's struggling and everybody's got these questions, God, I know my loved one has moved on to a better place. I, I know that. But couldn't you postpone their death for just a little bit? I mean, they were such a blessing to us here. 
there's so many people here in this life that still need him. There's so much good they still could have done here in this world. Why now, God? Couldn't you have postponed it for just a little bit? And it's an honest emotion. And it's okay to feel that way. But do you see what we're assuming when we talk like that? That it's only in this life, this world, that they could be a blessing? That it was only in this life, this world, where they had an opportunity to serve God and, and accomplish something worthwhile? Because after all, once you get to heaven, you got nothing to do. That's not true. One of the lessons that we're being taught here in Acts chapter 12 is that the God who had a plan and purpose for the Apostle James here in this life also had a plan and purpose for him in the next life too. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? He kind of hints at this. He says, in the next life, we will judge angels. Now, I have no clue what that means. That's all a mystery to me. But I do know this, angels are big and they are powerful. And yet somehow, someway, in that next life, God's going to put me in a position of authority, a position of responsibility that somehow puts me over them. Somehow, someway, in that next life, I'm going to be expected to make judgments about the angels and the work that they're doing. In other words, in that next life, there's an assignment waiting for me, an assignment that is bigger and more important and more advanced than anything I've ever had to handle in this life. So when I get to heaven, I'm not going to be sitting on clouds and playing harps and eating angel food cake. No. In that next life, God has things for us to do, really important things for us to do. You see, the God who had a plan and purpose for James in this life had a plan and purpose for him in the next life, too. And that's not just true for James. That's true for us. In that next life, there are things that God wants us to see, and there are things that he wants us to learn, and there are things that he wants us to accomplish, and there are things that he wants us to experience, things that are so wonderful, so awesome. It is bigger and better than anything we've ever known in this life. Now, right now, that's kind of hard to comprehend, but remember the promise of Jesus that one day, later on, we're going to be in a place where it all becomes clear. We're going to be in a place, in a position, where finally we can see God knows exactly what he's doing. So, what do I learn from Acts chapter 12? Well, one of the lessons I learned is this. Your life and mine was designed to have meaning. But you can only discover that meaning when you put yourself in the right context. When you put yourself in the story that God is telling. Let's pray. God, life can be so hard and sometimes so confusing. Sometimes it's hard to see and make sense out of what's happening. So God, help us. Help us to see that you are in control. God, help us to see that you do have a plan and a purpose for our lives. And God, help us to see that one day you will make all things work together for good. God, encourage us to trust you. And I ask you for that help in Jesus' name.